Hello, this is John Bueri, and welcome to another episode of Community Intelligence, where we explore how leaders engage and build community. For this episode, I met with Shane Goldsmith, President and CEO of the Liberty Hill Foundation, which directly empowers grassroots community organizing efforts. Shane discusses the Foundation's unique approach to solving problems of economic, environmental, and racial injustice by engaging the individuals most affected and tracing the symptoms back to their source. There's a lot of wisdom in Liberty Hill's approach that can be applied to anyone seeking to affect change and build movements. So Shane, you're leading the Liberty Hill Foundation. Tell us about Liberty Hill, what it does, how long it's been around, maybe its origin story, if there is one. Yes, there's a great origin story. So Liberty Hill and I were actually both born the same year in the same small town of Santa Monica, about 42, 43 years ago. Uh, coincidentally, and um, we were founded by four young people who all had inherited significant wealth in the mid-70s at a time when there were social movements all around exposing inequality and un injustice, and they had inherited all this money that they had not earned, and they wanted to contribute to making a more just world, but they understood that they didn't you know, they shouldn't be the ones to decide how the resources are spent because they're not the ones leading the social movements. Um, and so they made the revolutionary decision then, which frankly is revolutionary even now, to say we're going to turn our resources over to the community to figure out what are the best investments to make to, um, at the time, the motto, the motto that was created out of that was change, not charity. So, um, you know, how do we invest in grassroots organizing led by the people who are directly impacted to advance change, not charity. And so they pooled their resources and created Liberty Hill Foundation. And we really live by the same principles now. Change, not charity is still our motto. And um, we have a community funding board that's made up of people who are doing the work, who are out there doing organizing, and who are experts, um, who are in the field. And we bring them together, and they help us make our grant decisions. And that way, that keeps us accountable. It keeps us um, responsive to real community needs and issues, and is it keeps us on the cutting edge. And so you've been around for more than four decades as an mm -hmm. organization. Times have changed. Mm -hmm. So how has the evolution of the organization transpired? So you have these four individuals that started the organization with some sort of resource and said, community, what do you need? Here's our resources to make change in your community. Have you changed? the way you approach the work? I think people who we talk to who are organizing in low-income communities of color feel under attack in, the attacks feel more bold and more sort of publicly endorsed, um, you know, from the top of our government. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it feels scarier. And, um, you know, on the one hand, it seems like there are more attacks and they're scarier, but on the other hand, we, as they've become more public, we can also address them publicly um, and take them on. And so we're seeing movements, of course, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, the movement around gun violence, which are sort of responding in kind. Um, but I think the other thing that is big in Los Angeles is, for and for us is that you know Los Angeles is really viewed as kind of the headquarters of the resistance and. Uh, in many ways we are and we should be. We should be a beacon of progressivism for the nation and say this is how, this is the right way to do things. This is a way to do things that lives up to our democratic ideals and values. And yet in Los Angeles we have big problems. We, you know, we have more people living on the street than anywhere else. 
we have um, we arrest and incarcerate more kids than anywhere else, and we are LA. We are LA is the nation's largest urban oil field. Um, you know, among other problems. So look at that. Just that equation of those three items. Those are monumental, almost insurmountable challenges. How do you deal with it? <laughs> and you're here at Liberty Hill Foundation <laughs> saying, hey, we got community, if I interpret it correctly, in community, we've got your back. Yeah. How do you manifest that? How do you, what's your approach to working with, on the, let's say, one or, one or more of these issues you just raised? Yeah. Well, so I think what we have to figure out now is how do we protect our communities? How do we protect the gains that we've made over the last many years um, in this era? And how do we continue to make progress and not just be in defensive mode? And I think Los Angeles has the opportunity to do both. And so on those three issues, those are our big three issues. Um, And so, you know, I think in Los Angeles, there really is a robust ecosystem of community organizers who use what we call inside-outside strategies. So they organize people on the outside who are directly impacted and then partner with champions on the inside of government to create initiatives and campaigns to change policy and systems in Los Angeles. Would you say that these issues, I'm just going to jump in here, Mm -hmm. are these issues require government? These are all government issues. Mm -hmm. And so this approach is is working in that public-private community engagement equation. Right. So, right, making sure that the people who are directly impacted are at the decision-making tables, their voices are being heard, their expertise is being valued. so, like for example, the the oil drilling issue, we started hearing about it from a number of partners probably six years ago. Um, who, what had happened is, <laughs> these folks were starting to have these really inexplicable and dramatic symptoms, like severe nosebleeds, you know, piercing headaches, uh, nausea, and um, particularly kids. So they're parents were taking the kids to the doctor and the doctor's like well, I have no idea why this is happening it's like, I can't explain it and so they start talking to their neighbors and it's like oh your kids having these same weird symptoms too and your kid too and they start sort of piecing together oh and it gets worse like Thursdays at two o'clock when there's this really weird sound behind that wall what's behind that wall we've never actually known what's behind that wall across the street from our house and they literally just started to piece it together and figured out there's oil drilling behind that wall and that you know a very extensive process of partnering with community organizations to figure out that there had been this new technique for extracting oil that these drill sites were using that was emitting chemicals that are associated with the very symptoms these kids and people were experiencing. And you're talking, of course, drilling, we're in a metropolitan area, you're talking about the outskirts of town, right? You're talking about the, the far reaches of this <laughs> large county that we're I in. wish we were talking about that. We're talking about right in neighborhoods, literally across the street in from residents in the most densely populated parts of Los Angeles, primarily where low-income people of color are concentrated. Um, and these oil drilling sites have been there forever. We're, we're started out as an oil town, but the technique for extracting oil changed, and that's what started to create these problems. And so folks in the neighborhood start, okay, well, if that's, if that's what's happening, and you know, one, there's this amazing story where this young woman who was at the time 11 years old, she's now, I think, 18 and is applying for colleges, um, but at the time she was a sweet, shy young woman who went with her mom to, you know, they found, saw that wall across the street, walked across the street, opened the door, went inside, this guy wearing a mask with like skull and crossbones everywhere in this facility, takes them on a tour, and that's how they figure out, oh, <laughs> there's toxic chemicals here across wow. the street from our house, to- toxic enough that the workers are wearing masks and are, you know, there's warnings all around to be careful. Um, 
so anyway, they started to organize together and started to try to bring attention to the issues. Of course, no one would believe them. No one would listen to them. They went to the AQMD. They went to every level that's of government. The, the air, that's the Air Quality Management District. Yes. So they went to the various regulatory bodies, um, and nobody believed them. Uh, until one day, they finally had a press conference, and they had um, Senator Boxster come, and she got sick. Wow. Right then and there, because they made they did the press conference while the oil drilling, and they knew the oil drilling was happening. Um, so finally, they start to get attention, and um, so then now we have a policy pending in the city and the county to create a buffer zone between um, residents and schools and oil drilling sites. And you know, it's hard. It's taking on big oil, and these are you know immigrants. These are low-income people of color who are traditionally disenfranchised and who are fighting back and saying that our lives matter. And so how do you guys as the Liberty Hill Foundation, how do you as the leader of this organization get into that community? How do you? How do they find you? How do you support them? Well, Liberty Hill has long-standing relationships with leaders all over Los Angeles in low-income communities of color. And so we are often the first to fund this type of work. Mm -hmm. um, community organizations come to us first or we find them. Um, and we're, you know, in the, in the foundation world, there's this idea of risk. So a foundation you know, would perceive it to be risky to fund a brand new community organization or a brand new campaign that doesn't have all the you know, academic research to back it up or you know, an organization that's, that's, you know, has a budget of a few hundred thousand dollars and would be perceived not to have the infrastructure um, to sort of prove that it can get the job done and Liberty that's all Liberty Hill funds <laughs> um, so Liberty Hill will fund you know a brand new startup um, will fund most of the of our grantees have budgets of under a million dollars most of our grantees are led by people of color um, and in larger foundation land um, there's very 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 minuscule amount of investment goes into organizations led by people of color organizations with budgets of under a million dollars organizations that do community organizing um, but for us the, we believe that the people who are most impacted need to lead the way, and so in order to do that, they need resources and support, and Liberty Hill provides that. And so you, I, they came to you, you found them, you heard about this, and so what's the process? They say, hey, we need some resources for X, Y, and yeah. Z, and you say, sure. How does it become your issue? How do you take on, without taking over, the issue of, of communities you're working to serve? That's a great question. And that's always the worry that um, because Liberty Hill is a larger institution than our, most of our grantees, um, there is always going to be that worry that we might inadvertently get in the way, um, steal credit, or just inadvertently get credit just because we're bigger right. um, and more visible. And so um, we work very hard to build trust with our grantees. One of the, the basic ingredients of building trust between a foundation and a grantee is long-term funding. I mean, literally. <laughs> it's like we will fund them year after year as win or lose, you know, as long as they're continuing to make progress and as long as we, our values are aligned and that they, there are enough victories that we know they're building power and they are making changing uh, systems and policies over time. We know things sometimes take longer than we expect. Opposition can be more powerful than we expect. And so things take, can take many, many years. Um, but we will support these organizations year after year after year with funding, with training, with technical assistance, with any relationships that we have with you know, elected officials or other foundations, or we will always open those doors for folks. Um, and so that builds trust over time. And then it's just a constant communication on the things that we are more involved in, like oil drilling or youth incarceration or rent control. Um, we're just trying to be in constant 
contact. So if we are inadvertently getting in the way, um, they'll they'll tell us, you know, and we'll renegotiate. But our goal is really just to help, um, and we're pretty much willing to do anything to help. I want to ask you about the way that a movement like that gets funded, right? The idea that you have one individual and one family in one neighborhood that grows something, but then it's an issue that's more than one neighborhood. How do you, are you funding multiple organizations? And then how do you deal with the people? The idea that if it's overtime, people leave jobs, people move neighborhoods, people's lives change. How do you maintain, so there's two questions buried there. How do you deal with multiple organizations working on the same issue? What's your, what's your approach to that? And then what's your approach to the human factor? That these are people both on your staff and, and working at your organization, as well as the people you're working with. It's not this institution working with this institution. It's two people or three people working together, right? How do you balance that? Two questions. Very true. So in terms of how do we fund the work, we, I mean, Los Angeles is so big and so diverse that you have everything significant is done in coalition. So no significant policy victory is one without a large coalition of diverse organizations and people. Um, and so we do, we do a landscape analysis. So we work with our community funding board and our staff and our grantees to understand the landscape. So to understand who are the organizations working on the different campaigns and issues, what are their kind of relative strengths and weaknesses, what are their different roles, some may be anchoring or leading campaigns, others may be in a more supportive role. Um, and so once we kind of assess that, we try to do our best. We, of course, are a very small foundation. And another thing, by the way, that distinguishes Liberty Hill from other foundations is that we raise all of our money. So we raise it and we give it away. Other foundations have large endowments and they're spending a percentage of the interest. You don't um, know that. No. I mean, we have a very tiny endowment, which we appreciate. <laughs> but um, it's a minute. How much do you, annually do you, are you get, just for context here? I mean, uh, this year our budget, so over the last um, five years, our budget has doubled. Um, and so we're now um, at about $9.5 million. Um, and of that, um, maybe a third of that goes out in terms of grant making. It's significant um, though, I mean, yeah. millions of dollars are going out of here every year. Yeah, um, but yeah, we're, we're raising that. Um, <laughs> And so, anyway, it's not enough to support the social movements that need us, but we try to be strategic in what we support and how we support it. And so we do try to support all the organizations that are making a given campaign possible, if we can, um, at least the ones that are doing community organizing, because um, often campaigns will engage you know, service providers or advocacy organizations, but the one community organizing would be distinguished by um, engaging the people who are directly impacted to lead the work. So those are the organizations we're going to fund. And so, and you're not, the organi your organization isn't doing that directly. You're no. dealing with the leaders of those communities. Yes. The spokespeople, the representatives, the influencers, if you will, right. of, a, of a community of an issue. Right. And so you've done a landscape analysis and so you, so you get to get a scale. And so are you funding then, if you find that oil drilling is happening in this neighborhood, but it's also happening 10 miles away mm -hmm. because that's the way it works in LA, right? Mm -hmm with a completely disconnected organization, you may fund them as well? Or are you going to say, why don't you work with this group? Um, it can be both. On oil drilling, the organizations are in a coalition and they're all working together. And so we're funding um, the coalition and its members. Um, on youth incarceration, that's kind of multiple coalitions are coming together around that. And so um, we're funding kind of lots of different parts of that. Um, a rent control, I mean, that is a movement that's like super grassroots. So just tenants who have not been organized are popping up in Pasadena and Glendale 
um, in Inglewood and sort of just self-organizing and launching these amazing campaigns to win rent control in their jurisdictions. Um, and so there, you know, we're supporting, we're, we are bringing them together. We convene them for trainings. We convene them just to sort that, of get to know each other. Is that standard for a uh, foundation to convene people and do training? It sounds like capacity building. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing foundations do. I think we do it in much more hands-on and can do it at a much more grassroots level. So, like, you know, some of these organizations aren't even 501c3s. I mean, they're barely organized. Right. Um, but one of my executive vice president who leads the rent control work, for example, was on Friday night phone calls every other week with these grassroots leaders just trying to figure this out. She was doing, she was like, whatever she could do to lend her expertise, to cheer them on, to figure out what their needs are. So we will get very hands-on if we're invited and if, if we're helpful. Right. Um, and if, if that's not needed, then we don't do it. And we don't have the capacity to do right. it. So we'll only do it when we're needed in really unique situations. And so going back to the people issue, right? Now you've got, you've got grassroots people who are not 501c3 that are passionate, committed, and moving, right? They may not be moving in the right direction, but they're moving somewhere, hopefully towards a good end. You've got more organized organizations that you've been with for a long time. How do you, and how do you balance the people component, that you have humans that are doing this, this is human beings, relationships? How do you balance that <laughs> and work through that? Oh, humans. <laughs> That's the hardest part. Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the hard things about the way a foundation works with other non-foundations is that there's a power dynamic. So the, the amount of funding Liberty Hill grants out is small enough that the power dynamic is, is smaller than like the California endowment that's giving out gazillions of dollars. So there's a much bigger power dynamic there um, or power differential there. Um, but it's still there and be, you know with money comes some amount of power and um, so we have to be very careful that we really do believe that the people who are directly impacted need to lead the work and we need to figure out how to support them in that um, and so it's just constant communication and it's working really hard to be to be open to feedback, to solicit feedback, to acknowledge that it might be difficult for our partners to give us feedback. I mean, it's different. It's difficult for any two people to give feedback to each other, even like married couples. You know, <laughs> I mean, like it's hard. Um, and so, to, when there's a power dynamic and it's a professional relationship, it can be it can be hard. And when there's so much at stake, you know, when people's lives are at stake. Um, it just it can be really hard to give and receive that feedback. So the whole team here works really hard at that. I know our partners do too, just be in constant communication about you know how can we help. Um, and there's all sorts of things like whose logo goes on a on a piece of collateral or who gets to speak at a press conference or um, what is the messaging on a certain issue. You know how how. Uh, radical can the messaging be if, if you know Liberty Hill has different partners than our partners have and right. different audiences and um, so it's just a constant negotiation I think trying to be as transparent as possible about that like trying to be clear about what is our self-interest in a given negotiation what is their self-interest and how can we um, where is the common ground where we can you know create a win-win situation but it's hard, and we make mistakes every day. Can you give an example of one of those? Because we all make mistakes, sure, yeah. but in that space, how do you, how do you, or generically speaking, you don't want to give names. <laughs> uh, you know, how do you? Is there a time that there was a mistake made that you've learned from mm -hmm. as a group? I should have a a ready-made list of stories that I can safely tell on mistakes. I, I, I get it. It's it's the safe story. It, you're yeah, you're willing to sensitive topics and long-term relationships. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Let me think about that. Um, well, for Liberty Hill, we, f 
for 40 years, going back to your question of kind of what's changed for Liberty Hill, uh, for most of our 40 years, we really were a super behind the scenes, like we're going to raise the money and we're going to give it away, and that's it. And um, at, right about the time Trump got elected, we realized the stakes had been dramatically raised on all of our work, and um, we need to figure out what more can we bring to the table? How, how can we bring our full institution to support this work? And it was then that we realized we actually have a lot more than just money to give. We have relationships that we've built over 40 years. We have expertise. Um, and we need to really put that in service of the community organizations, which then causes all these issues to raise about. It's really easy to build trust when all we're doing is giving them money and right. cheering them on. Um, you know, and providing training and uplifting their their memes on social media. But when it's like, okay, we're actually going to uh, become more partners and we're going to bring more of our institutional power to the table, um, that potentially can create opportunities for tension. And so um, one of the things we've done is for the first time ever, we are now partnering with government. We have a couple different partnerships with county government. Um, and so all of a sudden it's like, you know, we send out an email to celebrate an achievement and we are so used to and so good at celebrating our community partners and their role in the achievement and we leave out our government partners because we're just not accustomed to that. And so then the government partners are like, we're partners, we're, you know, we're putting our, you know, ourselves on the line to support this. and. Um, we want people to know that, you know, and it's like, that's true, you know, they, uh, we couldn't do this without them. Of course they deserve credit. Of course we want to celebrate them. Um, and so I think that happens a lot where um, because Liberty Hill has, you know, or is perceived to have a, a somewhat of a platform, people apparently open our emails and some people pay attention to what we put out there. It matters who we think and how we thank them. And it probably matters more who we think and how we thank them than the con the brilliant content of the email you know right. which is where i spend all my time like make it really smart <laughs> and interesting you know and it's like well let's make sure we give appropriate credit to all of our partners and um so that's we've run into a number of mistakes there and we i always feel terrible about that and and we just will have meetings okay like let's make sure everybody who deserves to be credited needs to be credited and that's more important than like anything else in this email or in this public statement you know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about other smaller funders, people who are not the mega millions institutional funders that are giving out tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of a year. Um, they may be philanthropic, or they may be um, uh, foundational, but they also may be corporate. You know, you see a lot of corporate money being given away at about the, sort of between a half a million to uh, a couple million from some mid-sized to larger companies locally and, and across the country. How would, what advice would you give those for-profit donors that are trying to make change. I think that there's been a realization, I've heard a lot, that people don't want to just write a check anymore. They want to be involved in things that are important to communities. They may not may not be as progressive as some of the issues that you're tackling, or they, the issues they're tackling may not be as complicated or, or really historically mired as what you've already talked about, um, but they still have the uh, interest to do what's right and do it the right way to serve the people that they're serving. What advice do you give folks in, that are in your space looking to give money away yeah. uh, and really support a community initiative or a community at, at large? I mean, there's a couple of things I would say. I mean, I think, first of all, whether you're an institution or an individual, your giving should be guided by your values and your goals. So, um, you know, really what are you trying to accomplish and, and, you know, what matters most to you? And 
I, you know, Liberty Hill's motto is change, not charity. And so we really believe that, um, that you want to sort of go as far upstream as you can on a problem to get to the root cause. Because if you can get to a problem's root cause, then you can solve all the subsequent you know, symptoms and consequences. And, um, and a lot of times those solutions require you know, structural change or policy change. And um, so as a, you know, whereas direct services have a critical role to play, you know, Liberty Hill would, rather than funding direct services, we would fund an advocacy campaign to fight for more public dollars to fund direct services. Um, so that way, you know, we're like last year on Liberty Hill's youth incarceration work, we um, and our many partners across Los Angeles were successful in winning over $80 million of new public investments into prevention, intervention, diversion. Um, and that was through organizing and advocacy. If we had just decided, okay, we're going to fund prevention and intervention ourselves, I mean, it, it would have been a few million dollars. It would have been great and heartfelt, but it wouldn't have been $80 million. Um, so I, I try to encourage people when they have resources to really think about, you know, can you go upstream? Can you really get to the root of a problem and solve it at the structural or policy level? Um, because then the ROI, you know, that was like we invested, you know, probably a couple million dollars collectively between other foundations, maybe several million dollars, but the ROI on that was huge at $80 million. That's unlike funding a direct service where the ROI is kind of one to one. Um, so I think that, and then I think um, the second thing would be going to the people directly impacted and really hearing them and um, they know their problems, they can figure out the solutions um, and really providing them with the resources to to fight for those solutions. And that's where I think, you know, checking in on kind of your values and your goals, I think, you know, personally, I really like to be able to touch and feel the work and the, the successes and the challenges. But I have to ask myself, you know, why do I need that? Because the more involved I personally get, the more potential I have to get in the way. And, you know, low-income people of color need to lead their fights, and they need a lot from Liberty Hill. You know, whatever we can provide, resources, training, relationships, expertise, but they need to lead the fight. And I'm, I'm, I feel it. I grew up very poor. You know, I feel the passion. I want to be right by their side. I want to lead it with them, but that is not my role. And um, I think the hard thing about community organizing and movement work is that you, you know, it's not like you can go to a, a food kitchen or a, you know, homeless shelter and you can, you know, volunteer and you can, you know, I used to build affordable housing and like, oh my God, I built a building, you know, like the tangible impact is so gratifying. And I think, you know, if you're trying to really solve the big intractable problems, as a donor, we have to be willing to say, you know what, people directly impacted need to lead the work. You know, as a donor, it is my job to support them financially and in any way that I can. But I don't know more than them about being a low-income person of color trying to lead a social movement. And so I need to support them so they can do that. And it does require taking a step back. And it does require maybe having a little less of the, the kind of immediate impact or the immediate gratification um, of, of you know, handing that plate of food over to someone who needs it or hammering that nail to build a house that's for somebody who needs a roof over their head. Um, but I think, you know, you can find ways to collect stories and to, to see the benefit of it. And, and after a few years, you'll see a new policy pass that could benefit hundreds of thousands of people. So it will, you know, again, the, R, the ROI is significant and the impact is dramatic, um, but you kind of have to wait for it and you kind of have to be willing to step back and, and just be super self-conscious about 
as a person with privilege, you know, as if you are the source of funding, you have privilege, whatever your personal background can be. And for me personally, growing up poor is very hard for me to come to terms with the fact that I have privilege and I represent privilege. And um, you know, that I am the donor in this case as the head of Liberty Hill Foundation, but I have to remind myself of that and I have to be willing to take a step back and really ask myself, what, what am I trying to accomplish here? If what I'm trying to accomplish is long-term structural change, then it has to be led by the people who are directly impacted. I'm gonna go back a minute to something we talked about earlier that I wanted to maybe get some, a little more context. Um, I know that your work at Liberty Hill Foundation revolves around key issues and key um, sort of campaigns, if you will, that you're working towards. One of them is the idea of uh, young people of color incarceration and the connection. You, you had mentioned uh, that you're working with, the, or that LA County has the most youth incarcerated in the country. Can you talk about what that problem is and what you, what frame that for us so we can understand yes. what that problem is and what's being done or what's the what the path you see your community leading you towards? Yes. I'm so glad you asked. This is my favorite subject. Um, yeah, I mean, just on a personal level, my brother got arrested and was incarcerated when he was a kid. And he's been in, in and out of jail and homelessness for the 20 years since then. So it's an issue that is very close to my heart. and. Um, when I found out that we were putting kids in jail here in Los Angeles, more kids than anywhere else, arresting more kids than anywhere else in the country, um, I you know, just knew that that's what I had to devote my life to doing something about. And you know, I couldn't save my brother from that life, um, but I think I can be part of the solution and I think we will see a time when no kid is in jail in Los Angeles and we can get there. And I think um, right now we, we are in a moment, uh, a, a historic moment, where we have elected officials who share our vision that no kid should be in jail. We have, um, you know, the head of the probation department, which is responsible for incarcerating kids in Los Angeles that doesn't want to incarcerate kids. I sit on the police commission. I can tell you that the police chief for LAPD doesn't want to be arresting kids for minor offenses. And so there's a tremendous amount of political will. That, uh, that believes that there are better alternatives for kids, that for most kids who are arrested and incarcerated, there are better alternatives, that um, investment in prevention, an investment in youth development services, an investment in restorative justice and diversion, that those alternatives are, first of all, much less expensive, and secondly, much more effective at helping kids turn their lives around, at, at reducing the Recidivism, so a kid is much less likely to commit a future crime if they are sent to a diversion or intervention program than if they're sent to jail. And so if, if the goal is for us all to be safer and for our kids to have an opportunity to fulfill their potential and to be productive members of our community, then we need to invest, again, upstream on the front end in prevention and intervention. When you say kids, give me a picture. Are we talking like 17 and a half year olds? No. Uh, well, yes, and. Um, so just, la just last year, we had a state bill that was passed, led by Holly Mitchell in the state legislature, that made 12 years old the minimum age for incarceration in California. So until then, kids under 12 were being incarcerated. And in fact, because it takes government a long time to figure out how to implement legislation, we still have kids under 12 who are being incarcerated in California. So once that law is implemented, which will probably take to the end of this year, um, then, then no kids under 12 will be incarcerated. Um, but that means that 
So, you know, right now there are 11, 10 year olds being incarcerated. Once the law gets implemented, then we'll only have 12 year olds and above incarcerated, but they're being incarcerated, many of them, for very minor offenses. So, you know, um, well, first of all, they're being arrested for very minor offenses. And even an arrest without incarceration can lead a kid down a path, can stigmatize them, can cause them to uh, commit future crimes, um, and can just send them, you know, once a kid is arrested, the, every outcome looks bleaker for them. They are less likely to graduate from high school. They're more likely to end up homeless or poor. They're more likely to go to jail in the future. So arrest itself is a really uh, dangerous intervention for a kid, especially for a minor offense. So kids are being arrested and incarcerated for schoolyard fights, for stealing small items, you know, for, um, for things that are much better addressed through community-based support services. And because you're an expert, I'm just going to ask you, I don't expect anyone really to know this unless you're really into it. What are the demographics of these, of these kids besides the age? I mean, are, we, are, we, are they 50-50 boys and girls? Are they certain communities by geography, ethnic background, race, et cetera? What's the, what does the picture look like of this population? Great question. So in Los Angeles, 95% of the kids who are incarcerated are black and Latino. So 5% of them are not black or Latino. Um, so uh, youth incarceration, mass incarceration is absolutely an issue of racial justice. And um, there are studies that show that a black boy is five times more likely to get arrested for a crime than a white boy who committed the same crime. Um, and so it's absolutely an issue of racial justice. And we know that policies that are kind of race blind tend to benefit white people. Um, and so we need policies that really take race into account, that acknowledge that most of the kids who are being arrested and incarcerated are kids of color, and that have solutions and outcomes um, that are, uh, that have racial equity and racial justice as a goal. And so for example, we've actually seen over the last 20 years the number of kids who are arrested and incarcerated in Los Angeles d decline as a result of organizing and policy changes. Um, but we've seen the number, the percentage of kids who are kids of color increase. So the disproportionality has increased over time. That's what happens when policies are race blind right. or don't account for the racial injustice embedded in the system. Um, and so that is something we are absolutely going to undo. Um, and also... How? <laughs> what's uh, the, what's the, yeah. I mean, this seems like a, a tightly wound ball. How do you undo that ball that is, his, I mean, generations of, of history that inform it. Yeah. That's well, hard. I mean, I, and you know, I can't say that I have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination, although I did just go last weekend to um, Montgomery, Alabama to the lynching memorial and the, um, the National Museum of Peace and Justice, which is all about kind of tracing our history from slavery to lynchings to um, Jim Crow to current day mass incarceration and policing. So everybody should go see that in Montgomery. It's very hard to get to Montgomery from Los Angeles, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it is deep. <laughs> it is hard. I will say some of the things that we've figured out in talking to you know grassroots organizers who've been doing this work forever and systems leaders who are also in it um, is that first of all, it's acknowledging it. It's acknowledging that this is an issue of racial justice. Um, that it's not you know. A coincidence that 95% of the kids who are in jail in Los Angeles are black and brown. Um, so acknowledging that and then making sure that the goal is that fewer kids of color are incarcerated and arrested and that acknowledging that disproportionality is a problem. 
And um, I think one of the key solutions is making sure that the services we're providing, and again, Liberty Hill's primary role is to support advocacy and organizing to make more public dollars available to youth development as an alternative to incarceration and arrest, um, but that those services be community-based, culturally competent services. So these services are provided in the communities where these kids come from by people in those communities who are credible messengers, you know, who are people that these kids can relate to and respect, who have relationships in the communities. Um, and that that's really the critical capacity. Now, we know that, for example, I'm totally obsessed with this thing called pre-arrest diversion, which is basically, and as a, I'm both obsessed with it as a Liberty Hill CEO and as a police commissioner because everybody loves it. So basically, if the cop's about to slap the handcuffs on a kid, instead, they take the, for a minor offense, they take the kid over to a community-based organization and they do restorative justice, which means the perpetrator and the victim um, come together. There's not always a perpetrator and a victim, but when there is, you bring them together, the, the kid you know, comes to understand the impact of their decisions and um, of, of whatever they did, if in fact they did something that hurt somebody, which is not always the case. Um, and the person who was harmed also you know, has to share that, but also gets to know the human being on the other side of that, and there's you know, accountability. We know that kids, um, when they really understand that they've hurt somebody, then they want to fix it. They want an opportunity to fix it. Jail doesn't give them a chance to fix it. But bringing those two together and saying, okay, how can I fix it? Can I pay you back over time? Can I do some community service? Is this actually happening in yeah. LA right now? Yes, it's amazing. So these, both of these people are transformed by this. The person who was, you know, the, the victim of the crime is transformed because they feel like they're getting some real justice. You know, they're getting, they're getting to see this kid's never gonna do it again. They get to invest in the, the life, the future of this kid. Um, the kid gets a chance to make it up, to make it better, and to redeem themselves in their own minds, you know? And so it's transformative, and plus the kid's then connected to whatever support services they need. So their chances of ever committing a future crime plummet. Um, their chances of graduating from high school increase. Their chances of, you know, pulling themselves out of poverty if they're in poverty increase. Um, so all their life chances improve. Um, all from that one moment. It's, yeah, it's, well, it's, the, it's, the, the restorative justice program. Right, right. Yeah. No, but um, that moment but, right, of... Yeah. of not putting handcuffs on, but instead yeah. of doing something just in that moment, the police officer has the power yes. to change a kid's life. Right, exactly. And you know, that's $5,000. Whereas if that, kid's end up going, that kid ends up going to jail in Los Angeles, you're talking about $250,000 a year put that kid in jail. For, and they will leave jail worse off than they got there. <laughs> Whereas the restorative justice program, um, they will leave better off. Everybody involved will leave better off. So the issue of youth incarceration for Liberty Hill to get involved, you've got staff working on it. You've got a personal, as a leader, you've got personal investment in sort of making sure it happens. You've got your community funding board who is, has to be involved if you're going to give money towards it. They're, they're aware of it and they've done the research and done the landscape view. All these pieces are you working to understand the community, understand the issues and the impact of the issues on that community. How does it play out? Are you saying in your mind for this issue particularly, okay, this is a 10-year battle, or this is gonna take us, we know that we're in here for the long haul for 20 years. I mean, do you see the reality of the path you're headed down and how long it might take and what is gonna be needed to get there? Absolutely. I mean, the most important thing Liberty Hill does is we fund the ecosystem of community organizing throughout Los Angeles year after year after year after year. And mainly our goal is to get as much money to them as we can, and they tell us what the issues are, they tell us what the campaigns are, they tell us what they need, and we do our very best to fund them to do that. Um, we do pick a few issues, like the three that I laid out, where we will get much more involved. Um, 
and so so when we're kind of just funding the ecosystem over many years the goal of that is really to build power for in you know in low-income communities of color to fight back and fight for the things that they need for their communities um, and then so that's just ongoing um, year after year after year and then when we pick these few issues to get more directly involved with then we're you know we are working with our grantees and our partners to try to identify what are some short-term benchmarks. In any case, we always want to know what are the short-term benchmarks because we need to, we all need to know. We all are, you know, our community partners and Liberty Hill are all holding ourselves to very high standards about making significant change as quickly as possible. So we need to know, you know, what progress is being made, what are the obstacles and challenges along the way, what additional support may they need. Um, but we always want to be seeing progress. We need to see progress. We need to see victories. Um, to know that we're making a difference. Um, so in work that we get more involved in, um, then we're collectively setting those benchmarks together. And we know it could take many, many years. But for example, the campaign to end youth incarceration as we know it, we kind of have this five-year campaign. Mm -hmm. So we have goals that are really three to five years. So we want to reduce the number of kids being arrested by 50%. We want to uh, close the number of youth jails by 50%. And then we want to um, win the investment of hundreds of millions of dollars into a youth development system that we're kind of building from scratch. And so those are very ambitious goals that we really want to see accomplished in the next three to five years. Now the larger movement, you know, to end, ma you know, end mass incarceration and um, to invest in prevention, not punishment, I mean, that could take, you know, decades more. But I think that we could really end youth incarceration as we know it right here in Los Angeles in the next five years. And I think if we don't try to do it in the next five years, we could lose the chance to do it entirely because right now we have this tremendous amount of political will that we can mobilize to win. If we miss the chance, then these elected officials are going to go on to their next job. You know, the folks leading the probation department are on their second retirement. They can leave at any moment. Um, the police chief, you know, is post-retirement. So if we lose the opportunity to make a difference now, we could delay progress for many years. Wow. <laughs> it's not that I don't have anything to say. I have so much to say. Oh, but good. I, also know I want that to hear. Are we no, running I, late? We're, we're, well, it's already oh. been 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Minutes. Look yeah, at that. It's been 45 minutes. Oh. Let me go to lightning round. Yeah, okay. And then... I'm really bad at these lightning round things. It's okay. Okay. Um, I'm okay. We, you can skip it. We'll, okay, we'll cut it. I don't... In the beginning, I was numbering them. Number one, and then I stopped, because then if you <laughs> then skip you it... We, them. Oh, that's brilliant. Lightning yeah. round. Two questions. <laughs> Three and seven. <laughs> All right. Um, but just like the first word or like phrase, we're not looking for a long answer here. Just okay. okay. So, who is a leader who has influenced you in your work? Um, let's see. The leader who has influenced my work most recently has been a young man named Laquan, who was in jail. Um, he's now in his late teens, and he uh, not only has turned his life around personally, so that he's not getting into trouble anymore, but he's actually leading community work and organizing other youth to end youth incarceration as we know it. And he, we made a video with him recently, and he said, he said what he really needs is love, and that's what he wants to give to the rest of the world. And to hear this young man who's been through such, such difficult things, I mean, that so many of us can't even imagine, and none of us would ever want our kids to go through even one of the hard things he's been through, much less all of them, to see him be so resilient and to come back and say, you know, I'm gonna change my life, and I'm gonna help other kids change their lives, and all we need is love. He's beautiful, and I think about him almost every day. What is the best quality in a partner in a coalition to achieve good collaboration? You're working with people all the time. What's a good? What's the, what's the best quality? Open communication. What's the most important thing someone seeking to lead should do or know? How to listen. 
What's the first place you turn to for information when working to understand an issue? The people most directly impacted. What advice would you give 25-year-old you? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. You know, 25-year-old me was still visiting my little brother in prison and feeling like it was hopeless. And 25-year-old me felt, you know, I was an organizer by then, but I felt very powerless in the face of these big systems that were coming down on my family and people I cared about. And um, so I think I would just say that you're on the right track and uh, change takes time and it's hard, but you are going to make more progress than you can imagine right now. Um, and so just stay strong and don't give up and um, believe in yourself. What so far has been your proudest professional moment? Hmm. Well, last April we had our annual gala and we got to honor Congressmember John Lewis and I got to meet him and I got to stand on stage and I had my kids, my five-year-old and my eight-year-old come. That was the first time they'd really come to an event and they saw me speak and I got to acknowledge them from the stage in a room full of 800 people sharing a stage with John Lewis. That was pretty cool. Cool. Thanks so much for spending the time with us to talk about your work in the community and I can't wait to see what's next from you and from Liberty Hill. Thanks Thank so you. Much. Thanks so much for doing it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Community Intelligence, and for more information on this and other episodes, visit our website at stratoscope.com. At Stratoscope, we provide community intelligence services to businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies. Let us know how we can help you.